0: Uh, This morning we are in John chapter 5, so if you want to turn in your device or your Bible, uh, and certainly the determinant factor for the body of Christ worldwide is how they read the Bible, how they are invested in the Word of God. John 5 opens up a dialogue. Uh, It's interesting, the last few weeks we've kind of been in in John. Last week it was in John 3. And remember, Jesus posed the question to Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things. And then this morning in the sermon in John chapter 2, that first miracle, the wedding feast in King of Galilee, awareness of Jesus in both situations, John 3 and John 2, that Jesus is not simply an historical being that had a profound teaching effect. he's not a non-conformist rabbi he is the Christ the incarnate one the one who has come who is fully human and fully divine and when that conviction takes place in a person's life by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God it changes the way you read the Bible it alters the way the word of God has an impact so we're reading verse 31 of the fifth chapter the Gospel of John. Listen carefully. This is God's Word. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another, and I think you could capitalize another. There is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. you sent to John and he has testified to the truth. Not that I can accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his life. I have a testimony that is weightier than John's. For the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me, you have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. Now, he's speaking to a very religious group of people. These are the people that have now countered Jesus because he healed a man on the Sabbath. The Sabbath, which was reserved for us to consider the works of God. And now they hold him in contempt for violating the Sabbath in the healing that he performed. And Jesus is retorting here. He's responding. I'd love to have known the tone that he used here. Nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. And here's our key verse for this morning. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Jesus' problem, major problem, in his time were Bible believers. They may still be his major problem. They may still be his major problem people today, though when Christ-centered, they are his most important people. So just the possession of the Bible, even taking the Bible seriously, is not sufficient in Jesus' own eyes. This passage has to do with what testimony you truly are responding to. You do pour over the scriptures, because you think that it is in them that you have life, and it is true that these scriptures are bearing witness to me, but the big problem is this, you refuse to come to me to have life. Dale Bruner is an excellent Bible uh, scholar. Um, His commentaries on John and Matthew and his uh, theology of the Holy Spirit, those are three works that are are wonderful pieces of, of biblical scholarship. And he writes, there is Bible study and there is Bible study. Bible study to learn anything other than God in his Christ is slightly off-center. The Bible is not about the Bible. The Bible is about Jesus Christ, really from beginning to end. Now, Jesus' evaluation of the several witnesses mentioned in this passage Back to verse uh, 31. If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. So Jesus is saying if the only thing that I have going for me is the words that I'm speaking, you can give me an F. I have the mysterious witness of another, the Holy Spirit. He gets an A because his testimony is true. Verse 33, John's witness to Jesus for accreditation. If it's just John speaking that I'm a great man, that I'm the incarnate one, that I'm the Messiah who's come, that gets an F. But John's witness pointing to the one who is the revelation of God, that gets an A. The witness of Jesus' father-given, son-done works, like the wedding feast in Cana, the miracle, or the healing of the man by the pool of Bethsaida, that gets an A. The father's witness read non-Christologically, that gets an F. He's working through the means by which we come to conviction, to confession, belief in Jesus as the one and only who's come from God. So let's just spend a moment here on well-intentioned but misguided Bible studies. I was talking to Gil Cracky a few moments ago and I said what do you think? would Would the advent be open for people actually carrying their Bibles? And he said, well Andrew's already joked that we've become the 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 Baptist Church of the Advent. Um, But there is, can I put a plug in? There's just something about having your own Bible that you feel at home in, that you can study and understand and memorize and feel a part of, um, and bringing that with you. it's just a thought. Uh, I'm not doing this, <laughs> as, I'm not doing it very graciously here, but um, here's uh, several approaches that we want to avoid that I too fall into. The medicine cabinet approach, where you're looking at the Bible as just something to help you right now, uh, the same way that you take Tylenol. Uh, and that kind of, I mean, it doesn't. You get it. The pious pinball approach, kind of using the Bible according to your intuition, your likes, your subjective self. The cafeteria-style approach, the personal shopper approach, is it's almost like you're a consumer of kind of spiritual insights or information. We all, I probably, everybody in this room we do not like Bible know-it-alls. And if that's sort of the the ambition behind understanding the Bible, we all realize that that falls short. Kind of the evidence of really knowing the Word of God is not something that you uh, publicize. It's something that becomes deeply ingrained in who you are as as a person, as a father, as a mother, as a grandparent. Um, as an encourager, as a comforter, as a rebuker, that the Bible really, the Word of God, is shaping that personality and that character and the self. And the favorite teacher approach, this is something I run into, certainly, um, at Beeson all the time, that um, it's like the Bible and Bart, or K. Arthur in the Bible, or Tim Keller in the Bible, or Luther in the Bible, and... Andrew, I looked for one of those pictures with the glasses on the Luther image here to see if, well uh, I couldn't find it on the web. Um, ultimately, these approaches, the medicine cabinet approach, the pinball approach, they're all about us. What can I get out of the Bible? And maybe that needs to be heard and seen in the light of what Jesus says here in this context that you search the scriptures, you pour over them. But here, these scriptures are the scriptures that testify about me. Jesus rejects here a kind of secular vainglory When he says in verse 41, I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. It seems pretty strong here. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. That's strange. But if someone else comes in your own name, you will accept him. How can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory of That comes from the only God. But don't think that I will accuse you, Jesus says. Moses is going to accuse you. That wealth of testimony and revelation from the Old Testament by Moses, Moses stands up, rises up as it was, as it is, against you. One of the problems is spiritual biblio eccentricity. The problem of reading the Bible without Christ. Now, some of you in this group will like that middle quote from Dale Bruner. Canonical Christocentricity is always theocentricity. It's always God-centered. And the only theocentricity, God-centeredness, that is dependable is Christocentricity, Christ-centeredness. So you read the God-centered Old Testament and you begin to see that its testimony is profoundly about the one who is to come, about Jesus. It's Moses that will rise up, Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, and accuse you because you haven't heard Moses, his God-centered, Christocentric revelation. And, of course, the percolate, the Holy Spirit, comes along to confirm both the Christ-centeredness and the God-centeredness. Richard Hayes is now suffering from pancreatic cancer. He's been the dean of Duke Divinity School. And he wrote a really profound book, Richard Hayes Reading Backwards, the Bible. And he shows profoundly in studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John how all of these help us to understand the Old Testament. You almost conclude with every book in the every book in the New Testament has been written by an Old Testament theologian, steeped in the Scriptures, understanding how they point to Christ. And Hayes writes, We are standing within the still unfolding trajectory of Israel's covenantal relationship with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. John reads, The entirety of the Old Testament is a vast web of symbols that are to be read as figural signifiers. Remember the Fisher Price manger scene of last week? The plastic figures? that a one-year-old can hold and manipulate in that imaginative playground with two parents who will, I hope, work and are as uh, theologians. Well, that figural signifier goes back in that Old Testament revelation. This is just from the first chapter of John. The first chapter of John pointing us back to the Old Testament In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We immediately think of Genesis. I am the voice, John the Baptist. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And we think of the voice of the prophet in Isaiah 40. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And immediately we go back to Exodus and the story of the Passover Lamb and that tradition of altar sacrifices from Abel on. I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. Again, the language of the prophets coming through in in the first chapter of John. And then Jesus, you will see to Nathanael, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. All within just the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Pointing back, bringing in the whole Old Testament. So this Gospel-shaped reading entails reading from the New Testament to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament informing the New Testament. Jesus is the embodiment of the God of Israel. Reading backwards only makes sense because God is the author of Israel's story. Now this is, I think, important. There is only one reason why Christological interpretation of the Old Testament is not a matter of stealing or twisting Israel's sacred text. The God to whom the Gospels bear witness. The God incarnate in Jesus is the same God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Either that is true or it's not. If it's not, the Gospels are delusional and a pernicious distortion of Israel's story. If it's true, then the figural Literary unity of Scripture is nothing other than the climactic fruition of that one God's self-revelation. This is Calvin's take on the Scriptures, of reading it backwards. The Scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. Whoever turns aside from this object, even though he wears himself out, all his life and learning will never reach the knowledge of the truth, For how can we be wise apart from the wisdom of God? So our Bible studies are not about us. They're about Christ. And then they become what it is about us that reveals and expresses and testifies to Jesus Christ. What is it about our business? What is it about our life and parenting? What is it about our relationships? that are God-centric, Christ-centered. The Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization wrote a paragraph describing the need for evangelism of the Jewish people. There was a lot of pushback to that statement, and the pushback came from Jews who were offended that they needed to be evangelized. David Hubbard, the president of Fuller Theological Seminary at the time, and they've had several presidents since, but made this statement when rabbis in the Los Angeles area pressured him to come out against the Luzon statement. If Jesus is not the Messiah, of the jewish people he can hardly be the christ of the christian faith sir edwin clement hoskins uh, a friend of adolf harnack the father of modern liberalism a friend of albert schweitzer quite taken with the historical jesus movement until he began to study scripture more thoroughly and Hoskins came to the conclusion that the liberal search for the historical Jesus was a dead-end and that indeed Christ had come as the incarnate one it revolutionized his teaching and his preaching and his understanding of the fourth gospel in particular What is discouraged and indeed even condemned is every form of Old Testament study that proceeds on the assumption that there is such a thing as the religion of the Old Testament or the religion of the prophets of Israel. It all points to Christ, Hoskett claimed. If you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. Well, what was in Jesus' mind that he understood Moses to be testifying to. It's not me who will accuse you, Jesus said, but Moses will. Because Moses had me in mind when he wrote. And just very briefly, that proto-gospel statement in Genesis 3, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel, his... Is cursed to Satan, to the snake. Speaking of the gospel that is to come, that the son of the seed, the woman of Eve, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The call of Abraham in Genesis 12. As we said last week, the bronze snake on a pole in Numbers 21. And then the words in Deuteronomy where Moses is under understands that there will be a prophet who will come after him that will be the prophet that needs to be listened to oh 20 years ago uh, my wife and I uh, because of a friend from Toronto Canada African friend who was doing a PhD in the same program that I was doing at the University of Toronto David Mensa and uh, this goes back a long time. Since then, we've been there six times uh, to do pastoral training. And I was on the plane going over for the first time and uh, had really worked through the pastoral epistles. was on the plane looking over that material that I was gonna present for a week with them. And I realized that it was so American. And I began rethinking what I was gonna to present to them. And really, was quite in a quandary. The first day we would get there, this is in northern Ghana, it's very primitive, um, and still very tribal and tribal village communities. And one of the things that predominantly Muslim region, and one of the things you did when you got there was a certain kind of protocol where you went around and visited all the uh, tribal dignitaries. And so we meet the, the chief uh, of this one particular tribe, and. Uh, then I was introduced to the person who is second in responsibility of the tribe, known as the tribal linguist. And uh, my brother is a linguist who works in Hong Kong and has for 30 years. Uh, and uh, a linguist, I had always understood, he was kind of an expert in language, understood language systems, understood how phonetics and all, all of that aspect of language. Uh, But the tribal linguist in Northern Ghana, the way they describe him is more of a poet than linguist. And the tribal linguist is responsible for telling the story of the tribe. He keeps the oral tradition alive. And we met this 80-year-old tribal linguist, wiry, and he danced the the stories of the tribe. an exciting, vital man. And I'm sitting there watching him interact with that. Uh, they were they were dancing, the drum beat was strong, and this traveling is just sort of telling the story of the tribe. And uh, that's what, what these pastors in Northern Ghana need to become God's linguists, God's poets, responsible for this revelation. And sharing that story. And then, you know, I mean, let's make the application. We too are kind of responsible for telling that story, sharing that story, becoming God's linguist. Everyone has a story. And we are so conscious of that in this culture at this time our stories. People wanting people to be interested in our stories and wanting to be interested in other people's stories but I think it remains true that only one story redeems our story. And that story then becomes the most important thing. Everyone has a story, but only one story redeems our story. And so the Bible speaks of that one (coughs) drama from beginning to end in the most exciting and most implicit as well as explicit way but then takes our story and redeems our story, gives us something really to live for beyond the self. Beyond the kind of self-glory that Jesus speaks of in this chapter, is attracting, if that's the attraction, then there is no attraction. Uh, It's been one of our delights, uh, Virginia and I, to be a part of that ministry in Northern Ghana. And to share with this is uh, a group of pastors and chiefs that came together for a week, and uh, along with the gospel, there's been a great kind of peacekeeping type of uh, aspect to this ministry. We pour over the scriptures, and Jesus, in a very accusatory tone here with the religious leaders, says, "You think that in them you have life, but you don't. These are they that testify about me." And so it is all about Jesus Christ. <laughs> well, let's stop there and have an opportunity for Q&A. <laughs>
1: well, I guess my story is I was blessed to know that I was the chief of sinners, which <laughs> then made all the rest of the Scripture appealing to the Scriptures out to my salvation just an idea of understanding the accusation talk to us a little bit about the tension that exists and wanting to share our story through the lens of jesus but but the tension that is there of it being our story but also being about jesus that there's this sense, and and what do you say, that's one thing, the other thing is, what do you say to people who say, you know, uh, I've just grown up in the church, and I'm a Christian, and I really don't have any sort of testimony to share with the world?
0: Well, on the latter, you kind of just sort of say, well, no, you're wrong. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You have a lot to say. Um, In fact, these two are kind of... uh, aren't they related? That uh, I think the strongest testimony is this normal, ordinary person who's been saved by Christ, sharing with family and friends and siblings and colleagues and peers what Christ has meant to them personally. In giving purpose and meaning and hope. I think there's everyone in this room who uh, drinks of the cup and eats of the bread has a story to share about why they do that and why that has brought meaning and purpose into their life. So, and I think that that happens, you know, where it's not trying to think through uh, the, you know, the, the argument for faith but is sharing from the personal side of this is what faith has meant to me. Uh, The the word in Peter about always being prepared to give an answer for the hope that's within you has been misinterpreted, I think, to imply that we ought to have all the intellectual answers in order to engage in conversation with people about the faith. And it's not that at all. Always be prepared (laughs) to give an answer for the hope that's within you is because you have set apart Christ as Lord of your life. And when that happens, the, the talking, the relating, the sharing, the giving is
2: natural. Do you believe that each and every verse in the Old Testament specifically points to Christ, or is it for an overall view that points to Christ?
0: No, I discourage you from looking for Christ under every rock in the Old Testament. Uh, but I would say every image, every type, every historical progression, all of that points to Jesus Christ. So it's not taking each verse apart and trying to always speak of Jesus, uh, but it's seeing the thrust of what the Word of God says. Yes?
2: How have you seen people from
0: Um, Would you repeat the question? The question is, how have I seen people engage with their Jewish friends? Well, my best friend in junior high was Jewish, and that was my first experience of a bar mitzvah in a synagogue service, being uh, in Ron Goldstein's life. Uh, and Ron was really very open to having a Christian friend who he perceived as being Um uh, And so that, from a personal experience, was positive. I think there is a, like I use David Hubbard's comment, and I think there is a bit of a shock for, for Jewish people to feel like you're not saying that their faith is salvative. Uh, and I guess that has to be said with, with great care and great love. Uh, and I don't know what you'll think of this response, but to me that's like the oncologist putting a hand on the knee and saying, i got some news for you. You won't like it. But it's said with that kind of care and that kind of love and that kind of support. Uh, but it's still, it, Jesus has a tone here. A pretty strong tone. I don't know as if we can copy Jesus' tone, nor should we. But I think the message is still pretty clear. And that's a radical message, I'm sure, within any mainline church in our culture. To say that Jews really need Christ.
2: I think we are in a time when we should be, as pastors and as Christians, we should be talking to God's people in a way that is very powerful, but yet very caring and very loving. Just like you just mentioned, when you're going through a terrible time and the doctor has some terrible news to tell you, he says, I've got some news it may not please you, but it's very important that you know either you have three weeks to leave or three years how do we package the message today such that we speak the truth but still speak it lovingly, love the patient and yet isolate the patient for whatever cases that may be Uh, i think you know what i'm saying the side of us as pastors and again as Christians and yet we in the community. We uh, the people that we're trying to bring the message to despite the challenges that they are going through that we may not be accepting
0: Thanks. Well Samuel that probably yeah it's just a great statement uh, describing I think what what we've said uh I guess uh, several things occur to me. One is we do at least have to have the conversation, and finding ways to approach such a deep <laughs> subject, to um, move beyond the small talk and the, the kind of talk that is so easy to engage in. Uh, actually, I don't find that kind of talk easy. I'm not good at small talk. I'd rather talk about something profound and <laughs> really important. But um, that. Finding ways to do that, I think, is really significant. Uh, and then the, you have a great spirit here at Advent, I think, in terms of a vitality and a and a positive emphasis on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you lead with that. Nobody wants to engage in a conversation that diminishes them, period. You only have one of those. And when you feel diminished in the conversation, you shut down and you turn off. So we have to find ways to engage in conversation that people do not feel diminished. And I just think Jesus does a wonderful job with people. I mean, he takes on the theologians of his day with uh, a toughness. And I think we would do that too. But to the woman at the well, why? He's engaging. He's gracious and he also retains that sense of the sharpness of the truth. So we can look through the Gospel of John and the
1: model of just how he relates. Well, everybody is overlooked. Uh, we, as Christ said, there are two great commandments. First, love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor yourself. And we can look at an extreme case where. Uh, Everyone's about to stone a woman who is caught in adultery, and Jesus doesn't excuse her. He says, Let the first of you who is pure throw the first stone. And, and, and so he says to them, Neither do I condemn you. Shorten the short story. And I think, surely that's an appropriate approach. Right, yeah. I mean, that, that, that's actually you know, discerning. That's a very good point. You know, discerning uh, when when to drop the hammer uh, and, and when to apply the sound of the gospel. Um, you know, that's, that's a hard thing to do. I mean, just the first ten minutes when I was standing up there, that's one of those situations where you have to be very discerning about what needs to be said and also what needs to be heard.
0: Well, we should... And um, but with your comment that we hadn't uh, that hadn't come to the surface, let's use the Apostle Paul here to go out with, in the sense of an attitude for sharing the gospel. Uh, It comes from Colossians three, and uh, just thought of it with your comment. Therefore, is God's chosen people holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourself with compassion, with kindness, with goodness, with humility and gentleness. Bear with one another and forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. And let the word of Christ flow richly And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. So that everything you do in word or deed might be done all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. To me, that would be a very compelling thing. character and personality, wouldn't it? Amen? Amen. Enjoy your worship. Don't ever
1: clap for me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> next week, the
1: annual meeting. The
2: annual meeting next week, so vote early, vote often, and then um, George Carey the following week.